Well, I'm thankful as a minister that the call of preaching far exceeds any gift that I have been given or any preacher has been given that you know, actually, um, because the Holy Spirit is the one who promises to meet us, and we need to be met, don't we? We're looking at 1 John, and the question that I have for you is what would it take for you to hold on to joy? For you to hold on to joy. Now, in case you're wondering, I don't understand joy, I'm going to give you, Boston Bruins, a little tidbit to hold on to, all right? You know that I don't usually speak Greek in front of you, but I'm going to speak Greek right now. Are you ready? The word for joy is chara. It's true. It's chara. And I want you to hold on to that idea, Boston Bruins. I don't want you to forget it. And the question that I have for you and for me is what would it take for you and me to hold on to joy in the midst of our lives? We've just stepped away from Acts. We've gotten through the 12th chapter of Acts, and that's roughly 12 to 14 years into the life of the church when Paul's missionary journeys are about to start. We'll go back there next winter and into the spring, okay? So if you want to hear those, tune in next winter and spring. As we enter into the late spring and summer, we always look to the letters of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit's work as He continues to feed the church, and here we do it through the Elder John. This Elder John is the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. We're going to go back and forth between 1 John and the Gospel of John. It's going to help you understand even today some of those connections. This John also wrote 2 John and 3 John, and it's a huge discussion as to whether or not he wrote them 1st, 2nd, or 3rd. The fact that they're 1st, 2nd, or 3rd in our Bibles is simply due to length. We don't know otherwise. But as we launch into 1st John, you may ask the question, why? Why are we going into 1st John? Well, I mean, I could just as quickly retort back to you, why not? I mean, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is profitable for teaching and for reproof, for reproof rather, correction, training, and righteousness, that we might become competent, that we might become able to do what we've been called to do, equipped as followers of Christ to do what we've been called to do. But I want to point out three other reasons that you're going to see in this letter this first letter of John's to the church that I think is interesting for us. This is the introduction on those notes that it's in your order of worship there. That's for you to help you follow along. The first is this. We are in the life of the church. Here in this first epistle of John, we are in a life of transition in the church. Now, unlike Acts, that is roughly in, you know, 40 to 44 A.D., when we picked up and stepped away from Acts, we're probably toward the end of the first century. Tradition has it that John lived into the 90s A.D., some almost 50-plus years after Jesus was crucified, died, buried, and raised again from the dead. And that the elder John writes in the transition time of the church. Think about it. All of those people who were with Jesus in these first two verses, he goes on and he says, that which, we, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have beheld or looked upon, and that which we have touched with our hands. He's talking about those who walked with Jesus on this earth. And the church is in transition because John traditionally is known as the last one standing among those 
and that John is old. And we're going to see more of that when we see this. But the transition in the life of the season of the church is a good reason why we ought to look at 1 John. We ought to look at this as we, Christ the King Church Newton, become a particular church. And we ought to see God's faithfulness to sustain us. Because the second thing that we're going to see in this book is the definition of what it means to be a Christian. And it starts off very quickly in understanding who Jesus was. The definition of a Christian, according to 1 John, is going to be answered by defining who Jesus is, what it means to be righteous, to be obedient as a follower of Christ, and lastly, lastly, what it means to love one another, to love the brothers and the sisters. This definition of Christian was necessary during John's time, and I would argue that it's equally necessary today. And if you wonder if that's true, ask one of our college students who is home from college, do you think it's confusing to know what it means to be a Christian? And to an individual, I think that they will say yes. And I think 1 John's going to help us a lot. And finally, I think 1 John is going to help us in this season because 1 John, at its core, is an encouragement to a faithful church. I've been waiting all week to say that to you. That 1 John is an encouragement to a faithful church. Church, I have the high privilege of walking with you in your lives. And I praise God for your faithfulness. And 1 John is written to a faithful church. And I want you to know that I can't wait to look at this with you, faithful sisters and brothers in Christ. So that's a bit of an introduction. I read to you the first four verses and then I tacked on the last verse of the whole book. Children, guard yourselves from idols. And you go, Bradley, why in the world did you do that? Well, let's just jump right in. Let's look at the first point. Understanding and remembering that the question that I asked you to consider was this question. What would allow you to hold on to joy in your life? Despite context, what would allow you to hold on to joy? The first thing that I want you to see that John does for the church is that he says that Jesus is the real deal, not idols. All right? Now, if you're from West Roxbury or Jamaica Plain, you know that there's a sandwich shop called The Real Deal. And if you haven't been to The Real Deal yet, you should. It is The Real Deal. Some of you love berries. I get it. It's a great sandwiches at berries. But if you go to The Real Deal, you'll be impressed. It's The Real Deal. They're great sandwiches. And I want you to see that what John is saying to the church is Jesus is the real deal. He's not an idol. Verse 1 simply says this, that which was from the beginning. First way he's going to talk about Jesus. That which was from the beginning. The second way that he talks about Jesus is right there at the end of verse 1. 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have beheld or looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You might know the Bible and remember that that sounds familiar. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in John 1.14, the word became flesh. And as Dan Allred loves to say, and moved into our neighborhood, right? So the second way that Jesus is referred to is the word of life. And then finally, in this third verse, or in the second verse, rather, we see the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. That which was from the beginning, the word of life, the eternal life. Keep reading. Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then in verse 3, we understand that that eternal life is Jesus Christ. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The elder John is saying, look, you've heard a lot about Jesus, and I want you to know, I saw him. I was with him so much that I smelled him. I touched him. I heard him. I beheld his glory. That which was from the beginning, from life all eternal, was made manifest to us. The real deal. This idea of Jesus being made manifest to them is exposed publicly to them. Jesus was not in hiding. Jesus, begotten of the Father, very God of very God, God who took on flesh. John is saying, I was with him. He says, I heard him, I touched him, and I saw him, and I have never been the same. And he says to them, that which we have seen, we testify to you, and we proclaim him to you. Jesus is the real deal, John is saying. He who wrote this letter says, I walked with him. I lived life with him. And I am going to tell you who he is and what he said. And I want you to listen to me. All of us ought to lean in. I'm speaking at a graduation in another week, and it's a Christian school, so you might expect this, but over half of the students said if we could eat with anybody, who would we eat? We would eat with Jesus. And the majority of you might also say the same thing, that you would eat with Jesus because you've got a lot of questions. John is saying, I don't have to wonder if I would eat with him. I ate with him every day. There's even a picture that says that he leaned his chest, his head upon his chest. Even a verse that talks like this. He's saying Jesus is the real deal. Now, why did I put in that last verse of chapter five? 
Jesus is the real deal, not an idol. Because I think in the context of reading the last verse, children, guard yourselves from idols, helps you understand the import that John is putting on seeing and believing and knowing that Jesus is the real deal. He uses a word that sounds a lot like the word idol, but do you know what? It's not the word that a Greek would have used for a statue of a god that they would have bowed down to or the statue of another human being that they might have bowed down to. It's not the same word. The word that we know of as idol was used by the Greeks to describe what you saw when you looked into your reflection in the water. That's what it was. It was, it was that thing that was on the water, that copy and that image that was of you but wasn't you, right? They used that word idol for your shadow that your body casts because of the sun onto the ground. That thing that looks like you but is not you. There's no life there. It's inanimate. It's immobile. They used it of a piece of art, a work of art, that which was a copy of something that was real. And in fact, what is being done here is that Christians, both the Jews of the Old Testament that used that same word to describe the worship of something that was unreal, used this word because unlike the Greeks, they were willing to say there is only one God and every other God is a non-reality, is a non-reality. It, this word has more to do with the idea that it is something without reality which foolish people put their hope and their trust in instead of the one true God. When John ends the book by saying, children, with all of the affection of little children, from an old grandfather, and he says, guard yourselves from idols. He is recognizing that the world, which is a mission field, but also a war field, is filled with the potential of worshiping idols, that which is non-reality, that doesn't exist, is what he says. And he is saying to us, from the very beginning to the very end, Jesus is real. He's saying we've seen Him, we have heard Him. And though you and I don't hear Him say it, He actually says, and we will never be the same. And that to which we testify, that has changed our lives, we proclaim Him, we announce Him to you. We tell Him, we tell you about Him. The last two points are the two reasons. John isn't always this clear, but thank goodness on our first Sunday into 1 John, he's very clear. Look at what he says in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And anytime you see so that, you go, well, thank goodness. At least I know why he thinks that this is important, whether I think it's important or not. Right there in verse 3. So that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his son, Jesus Christ. John says, so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I want you to know that in saying that, John goes into brand new territory for the church. This idea of human beings having fellowship with God is new. This word is not used in the Old Testament. It's not used in the book of John, in the gospel of John, this word. But John was with Jesus when Jesus spoke in John 14 and John 15, John 16 and John 17. When Jesus prayed to his father and said, Father, would you grant it that they would be one with me and I with them and us in you? Jesus talked about abiding with him. And John heard it. And John picked up that language. And John, in his way of describing fellowship with each other and with God, the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, explains what it means for us to have union with Christ. And again, we're going to get to see more of this. It's going to be fantastic. Paul goes on further and further with this idea of fellowship. But here, John wows his readers because he talks to them about an inner relationship with the creator of the universe. You see, Jesus said as much in John 14, 15, and 16 that his relationship with the church, that's us, you all. That's us who exist here, all who worship in gospel-believing churches around the world and who have from all time that Jesus' relationship to the church is central to Him. That's an amazing thing to stop and think about, isn't it? That Jesus' relation to the church is central to who He is. Seated at the right hand of the Father, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it is central to those who walk with him. John walked with him. And he's saying, I'm proclaiming to you that Jesus is the real deal so that you would have fellowship with us. We want you to be in fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. Paul talked about how the barriers and the walls of hostility in Ephesians 2 were torn down in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, when He paid the price for our sin, which is separation from God, and when His payment was accepted and death was defeated and He was raised again from the dead, the reconciliation was effected between sinful humanity and God so that we could have fellowship with Him and with each other. This is an amazing reality. And John is saying, I want you to share this fellowship with us. I'm telling you this so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. One quick question to ponder. Why is finding fellowship with the church so hard? Maybe if I twist that question a little bit more, I would ask to you, 
why is it so easy to find fellowship with other folks in, in, in other ways, your community with whom you do your, your activities? I would argue that one of the reasons it's hard in the church is because we constantly get pulled from a shared narrative that is God's into the narrative that our lives are our own. And because we all do that with each other, we end up sinning against each other. And we end up finding that this fellowship feels very fragile. But John is saying that this fellowship is not fragile. He is actually saying that this fellowship is the result of the work of what Jesus has done, and it is not fragile. And that ought to give us encouragement to pursue our fellowship to the degree that we can be at peace with one another. We ought to do that very thing, right? We ought to do that. Finally, he gives us one more. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He said that we are writing these things, he's proclaiming these things, that our joy may be complete. Joy. Bruins, do you remember the name of what joy is in Greek? Do you remember it? Chara, right? You know this. Pay attention. This idea that knowing who Jesus is, the real deal, And knowing it, that we might have fellowship with him. That, they, that John says that we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This joy that is gladness and delight. The culmination of the reality of existence. What really is. That emotional response that is the result of a reflection upon reality. And again, this is the challenge of your narrative and my narrative, right? It's the narrative that Jesus is the King of Kings. He's alive and seated at the right hand of the Father. That this idea is the result of the reflection upon reality. That in Christ, forgiveness is real. Relationship is restored. And our fellowship is in a living relationship with God, the Father, and the Son. This idea of joy being made complete is best understood when you see a child who is filled with joy. What do we say about their joy? We always say two things about their joy. We say, man, that joy sure looks pure and unadulterated, right? Just excited and nothing in the way. Joy that is overcome. Joy that you might watch and say, that joy is too good to be true. I went to a graduation at Wellesley this weekend, and there was a woman who spoke from Sri Lanka. First generation, college student at Wellesley. She was utterly phenomenal. She said that when she was in Sri Lanka, she met a mentor for whom she was volunteering, and this mentor got to know her and said, you know something? College would change your life. You ought to think about going to college. And you know something? I think I know where you should go to this young woman from Sri Lanka. You should go to Wellesley. 
And that girl had never heard of Wellesley. I mean, who outside of Wellesley has heard of Wellesley? And so she goes home and she said that for three minutes, she began to Google Wellesley College. And when she realized the cost of Wellesley, she actually got mad at herself for being optimistic and maybe even filled with joy that some reality like that could ever take place in her life. She said that she went to work the next day and looked at her mentor and said, I want you to know, that's never gonna happen. And her mentor said, you don't know that. Let's see, I'm actually gonna work on it for you. And that woman who graduated from Wellesley on Friday stood before us and she said, and my mentor is right there. And she graduated Wellesley in 1989. And as you can imagine, the crowd just cheered and roared at the joy that was before us. You guys, that joy pales in comparison with the joy that results from knowing that you are in fellowship with the God of creation because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. Once I shared that gospel with somebody and my friend says, it's too good to be true. I've done too much. And yet, even now, and yet even now, because as John speaks this way about the fellowship and the joy that result in knowing that Jesus is the real deal, we look at the table that signifies his death for you and me. As if we hear him say, it is not too good to be true, and I am going to do it. And he has done it. What would sustain your joy no matter what circumstance comes into your life, church? What sustains your joy is knowing that Jesus is the real deal. He is not a non-reality, an idol. He is not an idea. He is real. And because of him, we have fellowship and we can have complete joy. Not the climax of the joy that's going to happen one day when we don't live by faith anymore, but we have the object of our joy right here. Right here, church. This is ours. And this is what we get to look at this year. Invariably in prayer on Wednesday mornings, after the first season of prayer and people start getting up and leaving, they say, oh man, I really needed this. I needed to remember the real narrative of my life. John says, let me proclaim to you the real narrative so that you might have fellowship and that your joy 
our joy corporately might be made complete. Let's pray.